0: Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're talking about romantic love with Britt Brogard, the author of the book On Romantic Love, Simple Truths About a Complex Emotion, published by the Oxford University Press in 2015. She is professor of philosophy and director of the Brogard Lab for multisensory research at my alma mater, University of Miami, as well as professor of philosophy at University of Oslo Britt, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks
0: for having me. So tell me a little bit about your professional background and your cultural background and how they influence your interest and your thoughts about love. I'm
1: originally from Copenhagen in Denmark, and I actually completed a degree in neuroscience uh, in Denmark. Um, That was at a time when it was not as big picture neuroscience as we find right now. So I was not so interested in, in test tubes and neurotransmitter binding. Um, And so I I changed uh, to to actually to cognitive linguistics and they happened to be in the same department as the psychology uh, uh, philosophy department. And I ended up writing a dissertation. um, So that I guess that would be a second degree. So I wrote a dissertation in philosophy And I have been interested in emotions, uh, which is a big topic, both in psychology and in, uh, I guess, in neuroscience as well, but certainly in philosophy. And uh, love in philosophy is not always considered an emotion. In fact, a lot of people in philosophy consider it more like a union. And I thought that, well... Love ought to be an emotion for various reasons, um, so I ended up writing this book. Uh, but it, it sort of grew out of my interest in emotions, and particularly uh, the more complex emotions, such as jealousy, regrets, grief love, and so on. So I don't um, do research on the basic emotions, which would be things like sadness or surprise or anger. I'm much more interested in these uh, more complex emotions that involve cognitive components as well as uh, sometimes bodily components.
0: So so did you feel like philosophy, uh, a philosophical lens wasn't satisfactory for you in understanding love? Um, I'm trying to understand what led you to... Not just look at love through philosophy, uh, philosophy as a lens, but also through the lens of psychology.
1: Yeah, so because of my background uh, in, in neuroscience where we had uh, big components of psychology because neuroscience back then was located uh, partially in psychology and partially in biology, uh, so I have uh, all the time been uh, as much of a psychologist as a philosopher or a neuroscientist and a philosopher. And um, I think that philosophy alone is not always enough. Uh, philosophy is very good at defining concepts and thinking about how to formulate the questions that we might want to look at in psychology. But as uh, empirical uh, research and clinical research in psychology that I think is very important in order to understand love i don 't think you can just understand love by by thinking about the the concept and that has been the traditional method in uh, in in philosophy so uh, when i when I have taught the course, I have a course here too. Um which is the psychology of love. Uh, I have covered uh, some philosophy, but I've covered uh, a number of studies in psychology as well.
0: So speaking of your trying to understand love, I want to read a piece from your from your book. In fact, I want to read from the first paragraph of the preface because I think it gives it'll give our listeners a sense of what it is you're tackling in this book. You write. Why does it sometimes feel like we're on drugs when we fall in love? Why do we fall in love with people who aren't good for us? Is it possible for a person to love you sincerely one day and then leave you for someone else the next? What's going on when someone says he loves you but acts like love is the last thing on his mind? How is it that we can be absolutely smitten with someone who can't seem to make up her mind about us? Can it ever be wrong to love someone? Is it at all possible to take measures to fall out of love and at a more fundamental level, foundational level, is romantic love essential for our well-being? So these are such pertinent questions, but also kind of daunting to try and answer. So I remember when I first read them, the first thing I thought was, why in the world did she take on the impossible task <laughs> of answering them? I mean, what, what drove you to tackle this?
1: These were questions I had been struggling with uh, and and didn't find really good answers to. There were some of the questions where there were some empirical studies um, about, for instance, how to increase the chances of falling in love. And, of course, there's, there are cognitive behavioral therapy, which I discuss a little bit in the book as well, that can help you fall out of love if love is not what you want or if it's something that is not um returned, right? So there, there there's a little bit of, of, of discussion of some of these questions in the literature, but I think a lot of the a lot of the questions we have about love, I mean, those questions and other questions, I don't think they are addressed very well in the psychological literature or in the philosophical literature. Um, for instance, that love can be not conscious to us, that we can be unaware that we are in love. That seems very sensible to a lot of people, but there are people actually in uh, psychiatry and uh, psychology who have said that that doesn't make sense at all. Um, uh, Sigmund Freud is, is is an example of a person who said that that love is not like that. Lust can be um, sort of unconscious, something you're not aware of, but not love. Oh. And there are other people who have said that love is always conscious. It's always something you feel. Um, but to most people, that doesn't make sense. And so I wanted to try to give an account of these things that would make sense to people. Um, it already makes sense to people, but then when, when you present the actual things that people have set who research these questions, then they don't add up to what people think is... The most sensible th- way to think about these questions.
0: Before we go further, can you define what exactly you mean by romantic love? How it's different from companionate love or attachment love?
1: Yes, um, that it's it's so we can distinguish between compassionate love and and passionate love. And compassionate love would cover love that you feel for your children uh, or your parents uh, and. Um, so of course I can be an element of passion in a very broad sense, but not in a romantic sexual sense. Um, and, and if you have friendship love, um, that's in some sense also compassionate. It's, it's about caring, um, more than about feeling attraction. So there, there are several elements, uh, to romantic love that we don't find in, um, the other forms of love. So the attraction element, I think, uh, is is important um, for it to be romantic love as opposed to, say, attachment love. Are you
0: talking about uh, physical but, attraction? Not necessarily.
1: It will typically be physical attraction, but it uh, is a kind of um, sexual attraction, but the sexual attraction need not be um, bodily. It may be that that you're you're in some sense, in some very broad sense of sexual, um, that you you feel a certain kind of uh let's call it erotic, erotic uh attraction because of a person's mind, right? So so I don't necessarily just like the the word physical attraction because it's not like you walk down the street and then you see a beautiful woman or a beautiful man and then you feel something that uh it's 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 a little bit different. I think it's erotic attraction that is a little more developed than that, although I do allow for cases of new love, also being in love, so cases where you are in love. But I also think that there, there is uh, feelings of attachment in many cases of, uh, of love, uh, and, and of course there are also feelings, or at least hopes in many cases, that there can be a certain kind of commitments. Um, But certainly not in all cases, we all know that there are other forms of relationships that do not involve commitment. So they're not necessary components of, of love. But if you talk about typical cases, um, that kind of triangular uh, version
0: of love is, is sort of roughly correct. Can you only be in love with one person at a time?
1: I don't think that 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 is the case. I think you can be uh, in love and love um, many people at the same time. And I think that that is often the case. I think that that is something that many people are not aware of. And I think that that is potentially also why people uh, have a really, really hard time getting over, for instance, infidelity, um, because it seems that if, if, um, Infidelity, of course, can be um, breaking. It mean, usually is, otherwise it's not infidelity. It's, it's breaking a promise. So there's a, a, there's a breach of trust. But in addition to that, there's also uh, the idea that, oh, how could you love this other person Why, when when I thought you loved me? Well, it is really possible to to love one's spouse. And I'm not encouraging infidelity, of course, but if, if it does happen, and also love uh, that other person. Uh that's just one example there are, there are people who are not uh into committed relationships and who are perhaps just dating around uh maybe they get attached to, to several people and they they might be in love with more than one person. There might also be cases where one person loves one person more than they love another person um because I argue that love comes in degrees um we 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 see that all the time when we talk right so we can say I, I love uh, him more than I love her, or I love that person uh, a little bit, or I love you so much. So, so yeah. So I think you can you can love more than one person, and you can love them to the same extent or to different extents.
0: You know, because in the in the English language, as as in other languages, I'm sure you know we have this semantic distinction between loving someone and being in love with someone. And you sometimes see in long-term relationships that the initial excitement and um, mystery over time gives way to a different kind of love that I think would still count as um, a state of being in love, but it seems to be qualitatively different. Do Do you have a way of understanding that?
1: I think that one has to be a little bit careful about some forms of love later on in the relationships. There are kinds of love that really just are attachment love, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if there's not a certain amount of attraction and erotic attraction, not and not just sexual attraction, not just that um, some people can could in principle have sex with anyone, uh, so it's not just sort of sexual in that narrow sense, but the sort of erotic attraction, if it's just about feeling comfortable with someone, uh, almost like you were f- best friends and uh, there's not much more than that, except maybe you were sort of satisfying your obligation to have sex uh, occasionally, I would not call that romantic love. Mm-hmm. I call that attachment love. And and I, I actually think that it's true that we do distinguish between in the English language and in other languages between uh, being in love with someone and loving someone. I think that they're just degrees of feelings of commitment and maybe also additional feelings of attachment. Mm -hmm. So we also talk about falling in love. Falling in love. I mean, some people use that later on in relationships and say, I think I'm falling in love with you, even though they would earlier have said, I think I'm in love with this person. And so I think that there's sort of, there are cases where where you could say that being in love with someone, perhaps in some cases is just used to mean I have a crush on Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, I think it means... The same as romantic love. I think that that is what people. There are people who have been married sixty years who claim to be in love. Um, um, that that is not just having a crush on each other, presumably. So, yeah. So I think that that that's, that's an ambiguity. And in, in I'm in love with that person. Um, it could just mean oh, I'm having a crush mm-hmm. um, in, in some superficial sense. But it could also mean something deeper.
0: So. Uh, one of your first chapters is on the chemistry of love, which I think will be really interesting to our listeners because you really take us through how love works in the brain. And you talk a lot about the amygdala and how important that part of the brain is for love and, and even compare love to being on crack or LSD. So can you tell us a little bit about your thinking regarding the chemistry of love?
1: Yeah. So there are, there are studies that show that when you are in love, um, especially in, in the early stages of, of being in love or loving someone romantically, that the chemical profile in the brain is a little bit like uh, OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder. So there's an obsession component and there is a, um, a compulsion uh and and um and the two main sort of chemicals neurotransmitters in the brain that are involved in o c d seem to be um dopamine, which is sort of what is involved in addiction and, and also in 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 compulsion in in many cases, and then there's another chemical which is uh serotonin and serotonin is sometimes. Called the, the pleasure chemical, but I like to think of it now as more like the satiation chemical or the satisfaction chemical. So when you're you just had a big meal, that's nothing, you're not particularly stressed out, and you're sitting, relaxing, seeing something that's comfortable on television, a comfortable, funny movie, or something like that, um, and you don't suffer from any. Um, psychological disorders, Your serotonin is probably going to be rather stable because uh, it's, it gives you that sense of being calm and feeling that everything is okay. Uh, It's not particularly scary. It's not particularly exciting either, but it's comfortable. It's nice and comfortable. But when you look at the chemical profile of, people will say OCD or people who are in love. It turns out that serotonin is low. And when it is low, in most cases is low. I'll get back to when it's high as well. When it is low, um, that is, that's a case where we are not completely at ease. We are not completely calm. Um, We have some anxiety, some fear, some worries about the future, And in the beginning of relationships, we don't really know where the love is going. So there might be a tendency for the serotonin uh, to be low because we have this anxiety about, well, will he or she love me back? Is it, does he feel, or she feel the same as I do? Um, Where's it going? And, and of course, in some cases that could feel bad and, and, and the beginning stages of romantic love can feel bad, um, and um, and that that leads us to the dopamine part. The dopamine part is sort of uh, the motivational chemical, also the pleasure that I prefer to call the pleasure chemical. So when our dopamine levels are high, we are typically highly motivated. Uh, we're typically uh, feeling pleasure. Uh, we're typically more daring. Um, we are typically um, more self-confident, and the dopamine levels, of course, in, as in other kinds of addiction, are not stable um, because romantic love is a kind of could be thought of as a kind of addiction. And if we're if we're in doubt and not together with our other or our lover. Our drug. So we can think of the lover as a drug. So we are not together with the drug, or the drug has gone away. Um, We are craving the dopamine fix from the lover. We want the lover to return, or we want to be with the lover. Um, And so we, if that happens, and we are together with the with the lover, it can feel like um, a hit of cocaine or or amphetamine that raises dopamine levels to very high levels and gives us some, some pleasure. So in that sense, it can be like cocaine, um, or, or an amphetamine to, to be with one's lover. Um, but it can also uh, be like an addiction that doesn't feel good. Um, where especially it doesn't feel good when you're not, uh, when you don't have access to the drug. So, so that's when when the focus is more like, well, you're craving the dopamine fix, uh, the serotonin is low, and that creates the anxiety. That's where the amygdala, the emotional brain, comes into the picture, because that's where the fear is being processed. Um and and so that's the that's a part of romantic love where you don't feel good. It could also be a case where you are really in love with someone, they break up with you, you didn't want to break up. Um, you're going to have some differences. We're going to presumably have very low levels of serotonin, so you're going to have a tendency to to feel depressed or to feel anxiety. Some people, uh, for some reason, get huge amounts of dopamine. Um, We don't understand that yet, but there are those people who will go to, any length to be with someone who has rejected them, right? And, and and some of them become stalkers, for example. And they're motivated by some hit of dopamine together with that bad feeling of low ser- serotonin. Um, so so it's it's complex. There can also be cases where where the serotonin um, becomes so unstable that it becomes high Uh, which it actually is in the case when you take LSD or magic mushrooms, those are actually, they work on the serotonin system and they they make serotonin so high that you are almost psychotic. So that can also happen and we don't fully understand those. What we do understand is that addiction element of romantic love, that's much better understood.
0: So are you saying that for some people, because of their chemical makeup, no matter how painful the longing is, they will persist and and pursue the person they love because they crave that dopamine fix so badly?
1: Yeah, so there are cases like that, that cases where they, they crave the dopamine fix. There are also cases where people um get dopamine in other parts of the brain that will motivate them to go and stalk their ex or that could be minor stalking. So it's constantly checking out their Facebook page, or it could be more serious stalking, such as if you park your car in front of your ex's apartment or house and just sit there waiting to to see them come out of the house. Um, so, but in, in, in the more standard cases, um, where where you don't become this sort of super main stalker, yeah. You your your motivation is from uh, your you want the fix. Yeah, you want the drug back. Somebody took my drug away. I want mm. my drug back. Um, and and so in those cases, that that is that's what we understand a little bit better is when romantic love uh, is like addiction, and particularly addiction in. In, in addicts who are trying to quit or who are forced to quit um, their addiction, maybe they can't afford that drug anymore. Um, their recreational drug, uh, and and so they become addicts. Uh, and some of them will also go to great lengths to try to find that drug again.
0: You know, for, for I'm sure we all know people who sort of swear off love, who like being single, aren't really interested in in being in any kind of romantic relationship and, and claim to be really happy that way. Do they have a different chemical makeup than the kind of people we were just talking about?
1: There are, there, yes, there, there are, there are of course people who get their dopamine fixes from something else. Um, it, 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 you could take the example of being really, really, um, into your work. Um, so you were you're almost obsessed with your, your with your work, or you, or there's some other hobby you have, or you have some friends that are you, that you really. I mean, in most cases, when you look at, at people who are perfectly happy being single, you will see that they get their pleasure elsewhere from from some other source. So they don't feel it's worth the potential pain, perhaps, um, to be in a relationship, or, or and and. The, there are other elements to it, of course, because there are also simply people who just cannot or don't want to live with other people because they're perhaps very independent and, and they just like to have their things the way they, they are. Uh, uh, I should mention just that, that there are people who have sworn off love because they've been hurt so many times that they, they refuse to go through that pain again.
0: So – I want to switch gears because you have a chapter devoted to what you call irrational love. And I'm kind of wondering what it means to say that love is irrational and whether love can be both rational and irrational at the same time.
1: Yes. It's a, it's controversial to talk about emotions even as uh, rational or irrational. It's not in in ordinary language, of course, because we say, Oh, you have fear of flying. That's irrational. Um, but, when love is is irrational, it's uh, I I have a more complicated definition of it. But one way that love can be irrational is when your loving feelings do not fit the situation. So a tip, I mean, an, an obvious example of that would be a case where you're in love with someone who no no longer perhaps loves you, um, and you can't you can't shake that feeling. It's irrational because there's no there's no fit between your feelings and reality. and it's, it's, it, it bears on your well-being in a negative way. Um, so that's one way that love can be irrational. Uh, the other way that love can be irrational, at least one other way that love can be irrational, is that if you are not perceiving the person uh, that you love uh, in a way that is realistic So if your love is driven by idealizing a person to be some person on a pedestal that is not even the person they really are, if that is what drives your love, then that is also irrational. So that's what I say. Um, And by rational love, of course, I don't mean that when, if it's rational to love someone who is sweet and nice. Um, So I have a lot of sweet and nice colleagues but it doesn't mean that I'm obligated, of course, to love them romantically. Um, but more it, it, by rational, it's more like it's permissible. Um, so, so when on the other hand, when love is irrational, it's really unhealthy, right? So that's that's a term that's also sometimes used, which might make more sense to some people. Uh, we could use healthy and unhealthy instead of rational and irrational you ask the question whether it can be both rational and irrational yes i think it can i mean that there, there, there could be cases where you um you are in some sense uh very realistic about the situation you're not misperceiving anything but the other person is treating you badly so there'll be an element of your love that's um that's not irrational in the sense that you're perceiving the situation as it is but then there would be another one Uh, element of it that would be irrational because if the the person is not treating you well and you're really feeling bad when you're with the person then that is not a healthy form of love
0: but it sounds like based on our conversation before about the chemistry of love that feeling bad is sometimes part of the process it's part of the setup for the reward later of of feeling good so i mean for someone who is in a relationship right now and not sure if it's good for them or bad for them. How, how can you tell?
1: Yeah. So there's a difference between whether, um, you are feeling bad is driven by your uncertainty about the other person. Right. Uh, and whether it's clear that the other person is not good for you. Right. So, If the if the other person is not good for you, then um, you're going to be perhaps still in love with them, but you're also going to feel bad. But you're feeling bad because they're not treating you well, as opposed to the beginning stages of a relationship where you really can't. I mean, you can't push things forward so that will be an element of uncertainty because until you know someone you can't really tell where it's going and so that kind of badness is this part of it and that's not making the love irrational because it's not what drives the love um in some sense um it's it's uh it's more like a consequence of early stages of
0: love so this is a great segue into one of your chapters which i i love the title of it's why was i holding on to something that would never be mine relationships and love attachment and you have a really great example in the book um starting with a letter from a friend zoe do you want to tell us about zoe and about attachment love
1: yeah so um attachment love um or, or rather attachment styles are styles that make us act in um in certain ways in relationships, not just romantic relationships, but most relationships. So most people are not completely secure in their attachment style. That's the ideal where you're just, um, you're just, you're not clingy, you're not avoidant, you're just perfectly all right uh, in relationships. Um, Most people are not like that. So then we have the insecure um, attachment style which will, where you would tend to either be a, a lot on one side or a lot on the other side. And the two sides, um, you can divide it into more uh, categories. But for now, we can just say that there's the avoidance um, attachment style. So the avoidant attachment style is the kind of attachment style where you are, you need a lot of space. Uh You're not going to, feel clingy or you're not even having a tendency to be clingy. Um, you you do not necessarily need to contact the other person very much as opposed to in the book, I call it the anxious attachment style. You could also call it a lot of other things, but in ordinary language, people sometimes uh, refer to it as a dependent attachment style or as a clingy attachment style. In that case, you are, um, you really are sort of your whole, life revolves around your partner and your relationship and what they say and what they do and what they did say. And, and, and in both cases, of course, there can be a fear of losing, but there's a d- different kind of reaction to it. So the, uh, in in the case of, of the, the person who is, is clingy or has an anxious attachment style, they will seek attention because, that way they can sort of get that guarantee. That's what they're hoping that they're not about to lose, uh, their partner or the person they're in love with. Whereas the avoidance, the way the avoidant person deals with this is by not getting too involved. Because if you're not get, if you don't get too involved, then at least they're thinking, uh, not necessarily consciously, but they're thinking somewhere, uh, in, in their brain that, well, if I'm not too involved, I won't get too hurt, right? If, if this doesn't work out. So there are those two uh, attachment styles, of course there's some people who only have a little bit of each. Um, and they, they, as as I mentioned in the book, it's it it is there can be circumstances where your attachment style changes um, later in life. Usually it's pretty settled early on in childhood, but there can be many circumstances that can cause changes in your attachment style. So you may start out uh, being avoidant and ending up being um, clingy because of a series of bad relationships perhaps um, that's sort of called for you seeking attention in some way. Um, They can also be people who become avoidant, right? So there are people who, if they're hurt again and again and again, uh, they might end up avoidant. They might be like, oh, if I'm going to date this person, I'm definitely not going to get too close Um, certainly don't want to get married, uh, and so on. Uh, and it could be something that has happened later in life. A lot of relationships where, where they just got hurt. And, and, um, yeah, so, so there can be people who have a lot of that. Um, there are also people of course who, who only have very little and, and have almost like a secure attachment style, but it's rare to find people who don't go a little bit on one side or the other.
0: Mm -hmm. So did you want to talk to us about Zoe and maybe read from your book?
1: Yeah. So, so Zoe is, is a person with, um, an anxious, um, attachment style. And, uh, she is, um, she's falling in love or is in love with Brandon. Those are not their real names. And, and he has, um, an avoided attachment style. And, and it's, um, is something that that um, I also talk a little bit about in the book is that, um, of course, that's a, it's not a very good match um, to be avoided and for the one person and anxious for the other person, um, but they are often drawn to each other for very strange reasons. But let me read from uh, the book. So first, I'll read a little bit uh, from the letter from Zoe.
0: This is a letter Can she wrote read? to you. Yes.
1: Three weeks ago, I would have felt differently. My whole life would have depended on hearing from him. When I didn't hear from him, everything seemed unbearable and gloomy. I couldn't do anything. Every little problem I encountered was a world disaster. On the other hand, if I heard from him, I was floating inside a bubble of good fortune, gleefully brimming with energy. I depended so much on him. I depended on him seeing me. When I studied feminist theory in college... I learned about a tragic phenomenon in today's society. We women are alive only when a man's eyes are resting on us. We come back to life when he sees us. We die a little each time he doesn't. Therein lies the repression of women. This is symptomatic of my life. I thought my intense feelings for Brandon was an indicator of his positive contribution to my life. I thought he made my life bright and easy. All of a sudden I wander him as far away from my life as possible. It happened in the course of a few minutes. Something unnatural must have happened. I knew instantly that I never wanted to see him again. I hate myself because my happiness was depending on whether he would contact me or see me. I don't get it. I talked to my friend Diane yesterday. She's close to 40, but she looks 29. Her boyfriend is 29. He gives her an insane amount of attention. She feels appreciated. But she had a boyfriend last year, a real asshole. The guy ignored her most of the time. She was madly in love with him. But all of a sudden, she lost all feelings for him. It also happened in the course of a few minutes. Suddenly saw how badly he treated her, how disrespectful he had been, how little she really meant to him. I think the same thing has happened to me. Brandon has made an effort to tell me, if not with words, how little I mean to him. I'm only a space in a drawer, which he takes out now and again when his supper is too late luster. Okay, I'm going to jump now to um, a little bit on on, um, the anxious attachment style. Brandon is an exemplar of someone with an avoidant attachment style. His wobbly and undefined connection with Zoe over three years was the longest romantic relationship he had ever had. Zoe, on the other hand, probably has an anxious attachment style. Sometimes referred to as codependence. Though both the avoidant and the anxious attachment styles are forms of insecure attachment, their symptoms are different. The anxious attachment style can be seen as a hyperactivation of the attachment system. It is manifested in continuous attempts to make the lover fit certain anticipated goals. People with a full-fledged anxious attachment style are compulsive caregivers and overinvest themselves emotionally. They're the types of people who just might tell their new crust that they have bought him or her a Christmas present, even though it's only September. They expect that emotional in- investment to be returned in the form of praise and affection. It is as if they haven't realized that it's more impressive when others discover their good qualities without their help. They tend to idealize others and idealize relationships and friendships. They have a hysterical desire for partners or friends to reciprocate. They desire extensive contacts and declarations of affections and praise and are preoccupied with and depend on the relationship of friendship. The relationship of friendship is the primary means by which they can experience a sense of security and a sense of self. Whereas avoidant individuals think of sex as a kind of control or as uh, a proof of their attractiveness or status anxious individuals regard sex as evidence for the sex partner's commitment to them.
0: So I think one of the things we, most of our listeners will be wondering is how, what do you think of Zoe and Brandon? Should they not have been together in the first place?
1: Yeah, I think that's um, not a good match. Um, in general, of course, if you have a very if you have a very anxious attachment style or or dependent attachment style, or you have a very avoidant attachment style, you probably should seek some form of treatment um, from a therapist. Uh, That's that's the first thing I would want to say. But you also would not want people who are exactly opposites, in in um, what they what they want, right? So the one does not want to become involved, the other is seeking attention like crazy. Uh, they should not have, have become involved. Um, it Of course, it also can go terribly wrong when people have the same assessment style. Um, but if anything, I am a firm believer in that being a better match than when you get the complete opposites, being mm. attracted to each other.
0: And yet, I, I know some couples therapists who would say that, people like Zoe and Brandon get together precisely because they're so complementary. precisely because um, they together create this kind of um, push and pull, this kind of dynamic that generates a lot of energy, even if, if, if it generates a lot of pain.
1: Uh, that's exactly right. You see, you see it all the time. There's the, the um, so uh, the codependent, not in in in, in the uh, old-fashioned sense, but the codependent in the, in the, in the newer sense, and the narcissist. Um, that's sort of where well, the codependent is is someone um, who who's ca- a caregiver, right? And the narcissist is the caretaker. taker. Uh, and and in some sense they they work perfectly together because um, one is taking and the other is giving. Uh, and they feel good about it in, in sometimes, but most of the time they don't feel good about it because there are other elements to it. So so it is true that they often get become attracted. There there's several elements to it. I was the one I mentioned about one being more of a caregiver and the other being more of a caretaker. And um, and so that seems to fit well into the picture. But that's also the idea that if you are so if you seek attention so much, if, you're, if, you have, if you need the other person to constantly remind you how much they love you and so on, and the other person is not doing that, then what is going to happen? Well, what is going to happen is um, what is going to happen in everyone, right? We typically just get more obsessed if we can't have the other person. And and we start out being in love with them. If the other person pulls away, we have at least sort of an instinct that makes us push. And, and so, so in that sense, of course, um, the, the, there's something about that pulling away in the person with the avoidant attachment Mm -hmm. style that makes the other person push and push and push. Um, and, and, it's a very natural reaction. It, we, we all have that, a little bit of that. But, but when you have the extremes, you can see how that can go to an extreme where one is just pulling more and more away and the other person is pushing more and more and more. Um, and in some respects, yeah, they fit well together. But in most respects, they don't fit well together because mm-hmm. the pain is, or at least when, when it's extreme, the pain overrides the positive aspects, in my opinion.
0: But, you know, I, I believe some people are going to identify with Zoe in this, in this story and they're going to wonder, well, but what's up with Brandon? Why, why is he, why is he being so in love and kind and caring one moment and then so distant and cold and removed the next? Is there, is there something that he should be doing differently or thinking about differently?
1: I mean, it's not. It's 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 pretty typical for for the avoidant uh, person with an avoidant attachment style that actually ends up in some form of relationship to to have moments when they forget that they really have this fear of involvement. But as soon as they get too close, right? So so they're really caring and loving. They get too close. They get scared. Not necessarily. They're not necessarily aware of that, but they get scared. So they pull away. They pull away because they are really avoidant. Um, and should you do something about it? People who are avoidant are, in my experience, less likely to seek therapy compared to those who uh, have a more of a dependent uh, attachment style. There are people who avoidant. If they avoidant because they have gotten hurt for um, many many years in relationships, they they might be likely to seek therapy. But if it's something back in childhood where they developed um uh, an avoidance um, attachment style perhaps an avoidant attachment style that's coupled with narcissism or something like that uh they they're unlikely to seek help and sometimes uh they have to go into old age before they seek therapy because they realize how lonely they are and that's that's in just in my
0: experience So you have a website The Mysteries of Love and I'm wondering if you ever if you still receive letters from people and if you still if you give people advice who find themselves in similar situations as Zoe and Brandon and and do you help them figure out what to do?
1: Yes so there is a contact as um, button so to speak uh, a way to contact me via Psychology Today so The Mysteries of Love is on Psychology Today and so you can find it just by plugging in psychology today the mysteries of love and you can contact me um, in some, sometimes I get so many letters that I cannot respond to all of them so I occasionally pick one out uh, and uh, I write specifically about that person's experience that has happened in, in very recent times in other cases I write uh, simply an article that deals with with uh, the problems that most people are asking about because I get I get too many emails uh, to be able to respond to all of them, given that it's not my full time job to um to counsel people so so i do I do help there are cases especially very severe cases where I respond privately to a person um, mm-hmm. particularly when people are in very unhealthy relationships that might be harmful to them um, I might um write a more generalized article. So one recent article I had um, on the site was the only effective way to stop verbal abuse. Um, and and that was based on a letter I received where I decided to reply privately to the person, but then write a more generalized mm. response to their, their question um, because it was it, it, partially because it was hard to disguise uh, potentially the identity and because there was potentially also some danger for the person. So, so that, so sometimes I do it that way. Um, in other cases, I, I post um, in a, in a, um, in a way where I remove like identifying features. I post uh, the question and an answer to it. That also happens um, and has happened in, in fairly recent um, times. So I had one person uh, in October, I can see it was from October, help me stop thinking about my, my ex-girlfriend. So that that was a specific uh, question about what should I do to stop thinking about my ex-girlfriend? And I responded directly to that one on
0: the side. Are you able to share what might have been one of the most unusual questions you've ever gotten or a question that you just totally we're not prepared for, didn't see coming.
1: I have, ha- I've gotten a lot of questions that I didn't see coming. I w- one of the ones I was very surprised about was a question about how selfish some people are in bed uh, and how some people come up with that. So I do have uh, a post about that. I also had a question, also had a question about why is this? Uh, so there was a question from a person um Middle-aged person uh, in a relationship where the other person was extremely emotionally immature, mm-hmm. acting like a child. And of course, it's it's. And I know. I mean, I know it's not it's not a, a real psychological disorder that's uh, in in the, you know in the diagnostic manual, um, but it's also called a Peter Pan uh, syndrome, and it's mm-hmm. sort of something that that people talk about in popular media, but the extent to which the person was emotionally immature despite being middle-aged was shocking um i i I thought so so i wasn't so much shocked by the nature of the question as that oh oh, wow that that, there really are people like that out there it's not just middle-aged people who like to play video games they really are emotionally immature like they never grew up Mm -hmm. uh emotionally speaking questions from parents about parental love uh also sometimes unusual
0: well, Brit, this has been a really fun and enlightened conversation. I'm sure our listeners are learning a lot before we go, what are you working on these days?
1: Uh, I am actually working on a book on on hate um it's it has' an, um it's sort of in the planning stage uh, and it it will not be a, a book on hate uh, in, in as in hate crimes and hate in society. It will be it will be sort of a more personalized form of hate uh, and and of of course there will be elements of love because it's 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 um, we come we sometimes come to hate the people we love and so that's sort of um, it's even a saying right that the opposite of love is not hate but indifference and so I'm, I'm I've been thinking a lot about hate and how it relates to the various elements of love such as jealousy and and losing uh, someone Uh, in grief there could be hate involved in grief as well so um, so that is my next project whether it turns out to just be on hate or whether it turns out to be more on love again um, I don't know but but that's sort of my next big project
0: well that sounds exciting I hope that when the book is done you'll give us a call and come back on the show to talk about it oh I'd love to thank you so much well it's been great having you on the show Britt thanks so much
1: yeah it's been a pleasure thank you
0: take care That was my interview with Barrett Brogard, author of the book On Romantic Love, Simple Truths About a Complex Emotion. This is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology in New York, and I would love to hear your feedback. So go to my website, www.eugenioduartephd.com, and click on blog and podcast to find this episode and leave a comment. I hope you have a great week.